Hello, and welcome to this DerivSource podcast. I'm Julia Schieffer, the founder and editor of DerivSource.com. You're listening to episode two of our podcast series on the LIBOR transition. In our previous episode, we offered a high-level view of some of the remaining market-wide challenges the industry faces with the LIBOR transition. And in this episode, we are taking a deeper look at the challenges firms face with legacy trades as they prepare for the transition away from LIBOR into alternative benchmarks. And to share his expertise with us on this topic, I have with me Deepak Sitlani, partner in the derivatives practice at Link Ladders in London. Welcome to the podcast, Deepak. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me on. So Deepak, before we begin, can you share a little bit about yourself with our audience? Yeah, sure. So as you say, I'm a partner in the law firm Linklaters uh, in London. And so I focus on derivatives. And specifically on this topic, I've been helping a number of both buy and sell side institutions on LIBOR reform and also have led on the work for ISDA on the fallbacks protocol. Great. Well, you're in an excellent position to give us a deep dive into this topic. But starting very generally, what are the things firms need to be thinking about when they're adhering to the ISDA protocol? How does it work? Yeah, it's a good question. And actually, there's a bit more complexity to it than people might imagine. But at a super high level, the way it works is, firstly, it allows all of your contracts with other adhering parties to be updated. And and what it contemplates is once a LIBOR falls away, you end up with a compounded risk-free rate plus spread. So so the first thing is that uh, you end up with a backward-looking rate. So unlike LIBOR, where you know your rate at the beginning of the period, it is only at the end of the period that you will know your your fallback rate. Another thing is that that by adhering to the protocol, what you're doing is just changing the floating rate option. So a question I get a lot is, do I have to change my confirmation after I've adhered to the protocol? And the answer is no, you don't have to do that. So that at a super high level is, is how it works. Lots more detail there, but I think that's probably the key points. And you mentioned confirmations. About other issues, what, what are some of the issues that firms come across with the protocol? Yeah, so as I say, there are. it's not necessarily a slam dunk and it's not necessarily the right thing for everyone. So, so the types of things that we talk to clients a lot about are firstly scope. It's quite a broad protocol. It covers more than just ISDA documents. So one thing is just to think about are you comfortable with the protocol amending all of the documents that you have uh, within its scope? Generally, people are, but you just need to go through the thought process. There is a bucket of trade types that people call non-linear derivatives. So these include things like range accrual swaps, forward rate agreements, caps, floors, cross-currency swaps. And for for various different reasons, the the protocol works less well for those, those product types. So they are within scope, but again, I think if you have those trade types within your portfolio, you probably just need to understand where some of the friction is and whether or not they are trades that you should actively remediate rather than relying on the fallbacks to the protocol. Other areas are loan link swaps. So these are generally swaps that have been entered into specifically to hedge a position under a loan. And by adopting the protocol, you may have a couple of issues that crop up. One 
If you've got a broad financing, it may be that you need the consent of the other finance parties to amend your swap. And by adhering to the protocol, you're effectively amending your swap. So you need to make sure you've got the consent if you need it. And the other one is just making sure that you're comfortable with the way in which the swap will operate versus the way in which the loan will operate. Because ultimately, if you are a borrower, you're looking for that swap to match your loan and you just need to have a look at or keep an eye on both sides, the loan and the swap. So, so those are the kinds of things that, um, that come up. Beyond the legal issues, are there any issues that firms are raising with you outside of this? So there are actually a couple. So one is operations. So, so uh, as I mentioned, people are used with, a, with an eyeball rate to seeing the rate and knowing the rate at the beginning of the period. Whereas now, whether it's through fallbacks or with the new world of compounding, you'll only know the rate towards the end of the period. So operationally, there's a big lift to deal with that. And then the other one is just valuation, actually. People have talked about you know, what is the impact of having the fallback rate, which is made up of a compounded overnight rate and a spread that is based on a historic median. Does that impact the value of my position? And in turn, does that have knock-on accounting or tax implications? So, so those are the types of non-legal topics that I, that I most often hear about. Thank you, Deepak. And we're actually going to be covering that in some detail in episode three as well. And we'll definitely cover the issues that you're already getting flagged by your clients there. That's good. I'll look forward to to listening to it. So you mentioned scope. Are there any particular rates that are not covered by the protocol, such as the iSwap? Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's a good question, actually, Julia, because I think I'd bucket two two product types or two rate types that aren't included within the scope of the protocol. So, so one, as you say, is the buy swap rate, and the other one is overnight rates for use in CSAs. So, so firstly, with the ICE swap rate, we see that used in the 2006 ISDA definitions, and it's most relevant when it comes to cash settling swaptions. So one of the problems is that the ICE swap rate is ultimately a rate that is determined by looking at the price for a fixed floating LIBOR swap. So to the extent you haven't got LIBOR, you basically haven't got a LIBOR swap rate. And so so what we are going to see is, and, and in some places already do see, is a swap rate based on the overnight rates. So that's all well and good going forward, but you have a number of existing positions that ultimately continue to refer to the LIBOR swap rate for a particular currency. So what we expect to see over the coming months is provisions that allow you to update those references so that they capture the overnight swap rate adjusted with the Bloomberg spread with a, with a further convexity adjustment. So that, I think, is a topic that is, is going to be quite quite live over the next few months. And then I also mentioned CSA. So another area is we're seeing for US dollars, we're seeing the overnight rate in CSAs move away from Fed funds to SOFA. And similarly for Euro cash collateral, we're seeing the overnight rate move away from Eonia to ESTA. And that's particularly because Eonia will cease to be published in January 2022. And so there is a repapering exercise that is due to come, but people 
often incorrectly feel that that process is covered by the protocol. So just to be abundantly clear, it is not. It's a standalone process that people need to go through to remediate their CSAs. Excellent point to clarify, because I think there is quite a bit of confusion about that last point. Now, we haven't talked about legislation. What are the legislative options and can we rely on them for difficult products or areas of complexity? Yeah, so this is another area of focus, I think, for the for the coming months. And so it's easy for people to think that they don't need to worry about any of this because there are legislative options out there or solutions out there. And, and, and I would definitely urge you or your listeners not to do that and actively engage with transitioning. So, so when we look at um, legislation that's coming down the track, you've got uh, under New York law, Basically, there's going to be, for New York law governed contracts that reference USD LIBOR, if a contract is silent as to fallbacks or the fallback is to a LIBOR-based rate, then effectively there's, there's a mandatory override. Now, that shouldn't be relevant for derivative contracts because we have the protocol and really people should ideally be adopting the terms of that protocol. But it may well be that it's relevant for other products or in instances where people haven't adopted the protocol. But that's only helpful if you have USD LIBOR and a New York law governed contract. And clearly, there's a much bigger universe out there. So if we look at the UK, there's a prospective piece of legislation coming through, which is an amendment to the UK benchmark regulation. And basically, what that will allow the FCA to do is to designate a critical benchmark such as such as LIBOR as being at risk of being not representative with its representativeness uh, not being capable of being restored. And we've actually already seen the FCA make its statement on March 5th that basically contemplated or laid a path for some of the tenors for GBP, USD, and JPY LIBOR to go down this road. And so once a rate is is non-representative, then the idea is that it won't be capable of being used in new contracts and could only be used in legacy contracts in line with the parameters that the FCA sets out. So this is where people talk about synthetic LIBOR, because the idea is ultimately that the LIBOR rate would be continue to be published on the LIBOR screen, but it would be made up of a term rate plus plus a spread. So the real challenge is, okay, well, what trade types will be permitted to benefit from this synthetic LIBOR? And so this is the idea of tough legacy. And so the kinds of products that people have in mind here are widely held bonds, for example, that it's very difficult to get the requisite consent to amend. In the context of derivatives, I think the default presumption is we have the protocol that should allow us to update the swaps. And so we shouldn't really have derivatives benefiting from this tough legacy protection and the application of synthetic LIBOR. You then have questions that arise around, well, what happens if my counterparty to my derivative won't adhere to the protocol? Or what happens if I've got a non-linear derivative for which the protocol may not be appropriate? Or what if my derivative hedges a cash product that benefits from tough legacy treatment? So so there are some very much open questions as to the scope of use 
for synthetic LIBOR, and we will see some consultations come out to define the way in which synthetic LIBOR can be used. But what I would say is I would bank on it being a relatively limited scope, certainly in the context of derivatives, and therefore the overarching message is to make sure that parties deal with their LIBOR references either through adoption of fallbacks or through consensual transition. So those are the two main uh, pieces of legislation. There is a piece of legislation in, in the EU as well, which without going into a huge amount of detail is basically similar to, to the New York approach. Great. Excellent. So a lot, a lot going on globally there. Now, one thing that we haven't covered is the cleared space. So what is going on in cleared space with CCPs? Yeah, and the cleared space is obviously quite a fundamental and a big portion of the derivatives market. So absolutely right to ask about that, Julia. So so the first thing, you may wind back time and remember that LCH and CME came out saying that they would adopt the fallbacks that ISDA has has put together as part of the, the protocol, which is which is what they've done as part of their uh, rule books. But focusing on, on LCH, one of the things that they've said is actually what they'll try to do is in advance of the fallbacks kicking in, they'll look to switch or convert their LIBOR-based swaps into compounded overnight rate swaps. So that's something that we will see happen later on in the year. It then raises the question as to how do you deal with the difference between an overnight rate and a LIBOR rate. And there, I think we will see a spread added similar to the approach that we have in the fallbacks world. So that's that's certainly what we're seeing on the cleared side. We are also coming across questions around swaptions, for example. So what if I have entered into a swaption that is due to be, when exercised, cleared, and actually, what if what if we get to the point in time when 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 it should be cleared and there is no LIBOR clearing that's available? So that then takes you back to that I swap rate conversation that we we're having having earlier. So those are the two things that that are topical at the moment in the context of clear trades. Excellent. We get a lot of questions on that. So thank you for clarifying the the status quo there. My final question for you, Deepak, is given the challenges that you've outlined overall in this conversation. What is the one piece of advice that you would give our listeners as to what they need to do now or next, depending, of course, on their own level of readiness? So I think the main thing is just to embrace the new world. So the new world is working on compounded overnight rates. One of the things that we've come across is there are a vast range of ways of compounding So understand how all of those work and just make sure that you prepare yourself for it because that is the way of the future. Well, that's an excellent point to end on. Thank you very much. And thank you, Deepak, for sharing your expert insight with us today. Not at all. And thanks again for having me on. You've just listened to episode two of our podcast series on the LIBOR transition. Stay tuned for our final installment of this series coming soon. And in the meantime, you can find information on this topic on our show notes page. Thank you for listening. Join us next time.